This episode of Branching Out is brought to you by Made in America House Cleaning Services. Welcome to Branching Out, a podcast presented by the reporters and editors of the Acorn Newspapers, offering you a closer look at the news in your community. Welcome to Branching Out. I'm your host, Don Megley. It's July 5th, and to commemorate Independence Day, I sat down last week with the Acorns resident World War II veteran, Leonard Zerlin. We discussed his time in the war as a Jew fighting Nazis and what the 4th of July means to him. Thanks for joining us. So tell me your name and the day you were born. Leonard Zerlin, December 10th. 1923 in Brooklyn, New York. Okay, so the reason we're here is because this is an Independence Day podcast and I couldn't get a hold of a Revolutionary War veteran, so you'll have to do... I'm I'm getting close. I'm getting close. (laughs) So you are the Acorns resident D-Day veteran. Oh. So talk to me about how you came to be in the service? Pearl Harbor, of course. Talk to me about what you were doing on Pearl Harbor Day. I was in Brooklyn, New York, trimming hedges my grandfather's house. And everybody was screaming, and I'm wondering why they're screaming. And they said Pearl Harbor was attacked. And, you know, I, I understood the problem of the fact that my grandfather was telling me a year earlier relating to his problems with his family in Europe. Though it didn't relate to Pearl Harbor, of course. But the fact that I was listening to a lot of radio programs and and uh, I used to watch on the newsreels about the bombing of London. And, and that was 1940. So I was always interested in history. And when I used to watch it on, on the newsreels, it always bothered me that we were letting the, the British be bombed. And my grandfather said also the fact that we don't like Hitler because he could be an enemy of our country. And they're destroying a lot of the people he writes to that are being, that disappearing. Though we didn't know the, the, the severity of the, we didn't know what concentration camps were until maybe in the, 1943. So, and then after Pearl Harbor, I was angry that they bombed America. I knew nothing about that. But yet, four days later, Hitler declared war on America on December 11th. And then I said to my parents, well, now we have to go in. They said, no. I said, well, I just turned 18 three days ago. So I was able to do it on my own I, I said, uh, Papa, Grandpa, I'm over 18. I don't need your signature. Well, they tried to contain me. So I said, well, I'm going to... So what I decided to do, I took a course in Manhattan. It's called aviation engineering to get my foot in the door. So I didn't want to be inducted. I was going to enlist. So I had four months of training of all phases of aviation, from tearing apart engines 
to hydraulics to carburation for braking. So it was a very intense course. And then, of course, after I convinced my folks that I've had enough training, I'm going to enlist. And I did. It was about the middle of June of 1942. And so one of my favorite stories about you is when you went in for your medical exam. Oh, that crazy story. So when I went to enlist, you're standing there with hundreds of other men naked, and they're checking you out. And as they look, and I was the perfect nominee because I was five foot nine. My eyes were perfect. I had all my teeth and all my beautiful wavy hair. Of course, no flat feet. And then, uh, I, and the guys are waiting while they're checking my chest. And the doctor turns me around and he says, "What happened to your back?" I said, "Oh, I, I that's right. I completely forgot. That was about ten years ago." He's, I told him what happened. He says. Well, you don't have a rib there too. I said, well, I play football, I play basketball, I play soccer. You know, I never have a problem. I, I muscle around it now. So he says, well, I don't think we can accept that because you might have a problem uh, if you hit there. I said, I'm not going to a submarine. I'm going to an airplane. So he says, well, we can't take that chance. He said, I'm going to give you 4F. I said, that's the worst word you can tell me. It's like a dirty word, 4F. So, because that would have disqualified oh, you from oh, serving. Yeah. He says, "Young kid, go, go take an airport job. You'll get two fifty an hour. You'll be wealthy in a couple of years. Your folks will be very happy. They'll be they'll be excited." He says, "Next, I said before you let me go, can I have a second opinion?" He says, um, "Dr. Rosenstein, will you kindly get this goddamn kid off my ass?" So the the doctor comes in with a stethoscope. He said, what's the hassle? And the kids are saying, let's get on with this because they're waiting in, naked. So he says, why are you so anxious to go in? He said, you're getting four up. I said, because I believe that Pearl Harbor existed. I'm very upset about that. But my grandfather knows people dying in Europe. And I just want to protect the Jewish nation also. He says, let this guy go. That's a good story. You I couldn't make it up. No, you couldn't. But I completely forgot in my first interviews with, with Shamara, whatever, I completely forgot most of my interviews about that story until recently. It's a good story, though. It's an excellent story because you're just, you know, this young Jewish buck in Brooklyn making sure that he gets to go fight the Nazis. So there's something very no, compelling no, about no, that. No question. No question. Yeah. And so when you were in Europe... Talk to me about the biggest battle you fought in, the big day, D-Day. Oh, well, you know that story. I love that you know, story. So I was just talking to my kids the other day, and I told them what you said. So they come in, and they wake you up at 2.30. What did your commanding officer say to you? Really? What did they said? Yeah, and don't bleep it out. Just what did they say to wake you up, middle of the night? Drop your cocks and grab your socks. Bleep, 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 bleep. <laughs> I mean, that, that's, that's the language. I mean, that's, there's no other word but that, or the F word is every third sentence is F word. You don't talk English in the service. Yeah, so talk so, to me about how you spent that day. Well, the day was very meaningful because we knew in advance that it was coming because weeks before, we were restricted from getting any mail. 
we couldn't get telephone calls, we couldn't leave base, we couldn't make any other contact. So, and then I realized that everybody knew something was happening. However, I went to the to control tower, my air, my air base, and I looked with binoculars, and as far as the eye could see, was miles of jeeps, of trucks, of tanks, for miles. And we knew something was going on very quickly. And, and then right after that, we were shipped down to Bournemouth, closer to the English Channel. And then right after that, of course, was June 6th. 1944. And our air, we were awakened at 2.30 in the morning. You probably know the story better than I do. But I want to hear it out of your, oh. out of your, in your words. <laughs> we're awakened at 2.30 in the morning, and the, the first sergeant comes in, and he says, this is the day, this is it, and take your bucket of paint, and you're going to get, and my friend Tony he says, you're going to take a black. I said, what are we going to do with painting? Is, isn't this the day? He says, no, the airplanes are already striped for you, or stripped so you can paint the 16-inch apart stripes, uh, three white three white and, four, and two black. And then we went out. It was cold and wet. It was like, by that time, it was like uh, 3 o'clock in the morning. English weather was horrible. It was cold and wet. We got used to the weather. And... Uh, I had I was uh, I took the I took the wing and Tony took the epinage which is the end of the airplane, and he striped it his and I did mine, and then we had to go for briefing, and briefing was like four thirty in the morning, we had a quick breakfast I can remember I had I had eggs with with fam we got the grease and and hash brown potatoes and black coffee, and. And then we went for briefing, and we said, this is the day, and we're going to strafe on our Utah beaches. And we told we'd have to be on takeoff uh, at 6.30 in the morning. And we went there, we, we, we strafed until I ran out of ammunition. We shot it. The, the purpose of our aircraft, which is a, a Marauder B-26, I was a turret gunner. And the purpose was to strafe so the beaches were cleaned from the Germans. And we had bombs, but it's difficult to hit a bomb be accurately. But my job, and my job is strictly as a gunner, gunner engineer, to make sure the plane is flying well, and also that they loaded me with enough ammunition. So I strafed until we ran out of ammunition. And I don't know how many Germans we shot, how many tanks I destroyed. Then we had a, a, a gun camera that verified all the things we did. It was nothing heroic, it was just another day. So nothing special other than we, were, we watched the troops. But the what's most fascinating, if you want to call D-Day fascinating, is on the English Channel, was as many ships as you can see. I read there were 6,000 uh, ships, uh, bombings, whatever. And don't forget, flying over the English Channel is a few minutes. It's only 28 to 35 miles. So, and then we went back after the barrels. My barrel was so hot that I exchanged the barrels because it started to warp. Because towards the end, it was not shooting well. And they changed the barrels. And one guy said to me jokingly, hey, you, can, you might have a statement of the charges, Len. Thank God you're working for the, for the Army. I said, well, I had to buy my own barrel. That'd be pretty expensive. 
He said, make sure next time you don't burn our barrels. I said, that's none of your goddamn business. So it's a story. It's a good story. Good story. And so you said it was just another day. At what point did you realize how historic that, that day had been? I don't know. We knew it was coming. The reason we were hesitant, the weather was so horrible. It was heavily overcast. We couldn't figure out whether we can, we have to go flying pretty low, of course, so our, our, our mission was interdiction, meaning you interdict preventing the enemy from approaching any source of, uh, where, the, where, the, where you're fighting, you don't want the Germans to be there with the trucks, with the trains, so you, you prevent them from getting the food or ammunition. Our job is strictly to destroy the enemy before the, the infantry and makes the infantry uh, actually more access to get into inland. So we don't, when you do this, it, it's a clean way of killing, to make what I can say that. So, so one of the most compelling parts of your story is, is not just your military service, but the relationships that you formed while you were over there. Talk to me about some of the friendships that you formed when you were in that little French town. So after D-Day, you're stationed in France. Oh, well, this is a country that's well, liberated. Well, preceding the D-Day, we talked about service. I met a Jewish family. So my, my, my chaplain said they wanted to meet some Jewish boys. So I was able to, to get there for, for Friday night services where I got challah and they gave me wine. And that's a good story. Do you want me to mention that a little? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Was the it, wine Manischewitz? I don't think they had Manischewitz in Europe. I, I don't think that Manischewitz just sugar water with nothing with Manischewitz. It wasn't really wine, it was sugar water. But the reason I'm mentioning it is because they were part of my family for a year. I was in England for over a year because we got there in April of 1943. So D-Day was a year and then ten day, two day, two months later. So they adopted me because they had two daughters as well, and they gave me a bedroom, and my mother got to write them and send them the stockings and perfume. So th there was a family that adopted me that became my friends for all these years, and we put this on. If you're looking for professional house cleaners who deliver a consistent, quality job, look no further than Made in America House Cleaning Services. Made in America has a dependable and loyal staff of cleaners who are fully licensed, bonded, and insured to work in your homes, and they even pay workers' comp on all employees. And as I understand it, that's pretty rare. Made in America has been serving the Greater Conejo Valley for over 30 years, and owner Paul Lopez has been a resident of Thousand Oaks since 1977. When you call Made in America, you know you're dealing with a professional company that is deeply rooted in the community it serves. Paul has been a member of the Kiwanis Club since 2015, and he loves giving back to the community and serving through the Meals on Wheels program. So when you support Made in America, you're supporting these programs. Uh, Made in America takes cleanliness seriously and adheres to a strict COVID protocol to keep customers and employees safe. For a free house cleaning estimate, call Paul today at 805-499-7259 or find them on the web at madeinamericaonline.com. That's Made in America, M-A-I-D. Hi, everyone. This is Allison Montroy. I'm a producer for the show and the editor of Beyond the Acorn magazine, the Acorn's digital lifestyle publication. I wanted to hop on here today to share that the summer edition of Beyond the Acorn is online now. You can find it at beyondtheacorn.com. 
This issue has everything that you need for summer from picnic beach essentials, beauty and fashion finds, and local dining destinations. We also learn a little bit more about the sharks that share our coastline from a local photographer who has spent the past year documenting and studying them. You can find the whole issue on beyondtheacorn.com as well as find our monthly calendar of events. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at Beyond the Acorn and on Instagram at Beyond the Acorn Mag. Thanks so much. Yeah, so we were talking about the deep personal relationships you made when you were overseas. Oh, in French. The French story. This is absolutely almost, if I want to fabricate a story, every one of my stories are almost fabricated. The only problem is I got pictures to verify everything. And where do I start with the story? So you were stationed outside... St. Mary Glee. St. Mary Glee. St. Mary Glee was the first major invasion point in World War after D-Day. If you see pictures of the longest day or any of the major movies, St. Mary Glee is very, very pronounced in terms of the beach. We were stationed about a mile and a half from St. Mary Glee, Lalande. And after we, we were living in little pup tents, we had no, and we, we had an airstrip made within three days. The engineers laid down the airstrip, and then one of the guys said, hey, Len, you speak a little French? I said, je parle français très bien, as if I'm a big speaker of French, which I only learned in high school. But I was easy to understand. I just understood the language. So he said, why don't you go to this farmhouse and get us some cheese and bread, uh, so, and we'll give you some rations. So I think, well, it's only a mile. Get the jeep, put some stuff in, then give it to the, the farm people. So I go up the road, and I knock on the fr first French, French door that was there, French farmhouse. And a woman comes to the door, and she was an old woman, and, I, and she never had seen an American before. And I never realized that I was the first American that gave him the freedom. To me, I was just a GI looking for food. And as she's standing there, she says, Me, Mademoiselle Olga. I said, Olga, Swedish, DP, I'm a displaced person. I said, Oh my goodness. I said, I'm only here to find out if I can exchange things. And she said, I mean, she didn't speak well. And then two little girls behind her were like 16, 7, and they're peeking behind her. And then I said, I've got some stuff here for you, if you guys can give me some French bread. They, so they, they loaded me up with all the good stuff. And then when I brought it back to the base, they said, hey, Len, we're going to go to Chow, we're going to load you up, because we got so much junk here. And so I did that two or three times. And so you traded what? You guys had chocolate, you had Spam, what were you trading? It was, it was anything we had. No question, chocolate number one. Cigarettes as well. And they gave me the best cheese, the best wine, um, the best bread. And what happened, I said to my commanding officer, I said, these people are just lovely people. I said, I want to have the opportunity for having them 
in, in our airstrip. It's only a mile or so away. So I invited, so half of the town came. It's only a walking distance for them, of course. And I always carried it. My whole life has been photography. So I got them in front of some of the airplanes. I took pictures of them. And it's not that I was dating any little girls there because they'd be very careful about the Yanks, you know. that. And the English called us oversexed over here and over there, you know. They know the story, over here, oversexed and overpaid. I said, well, this is... So anyway, the point was that they were careful that I made no contact with the girls, but I got to know them as friends, of course. And then I took pictures of them, and then I put those pictures in the album I sent home to my mother. Now, the story goes 50 years later. The later, I had a granddaughter who was then going to Thousand Oaks High School, and she was the A student, and she came as she visited every Friday night to talk about her dates of 14 and 15-year-olds. And she says, she says, never called me grandpa, they called me Seats, which is my love name for my grandkids. So she says, Grandpa, Seats, weren't you in the war? I said, yeah. She said, I see all these airplanes hanging up in the ceiling. I said, yeah, I was in the Air Force. She said, well, tell me about the war. I said, well, what do you know? She said, well, we're studying the war. I said, well, what do you know about it? She said, well, we're getting past the end of the war. I said, what do you know about it? What, when was the war started? She doesn't know. I said, what, you said a, a harbor was burned, bombed? She says, yeah. I said, was it Ventura Harbor? She says, no, I'm not sure. I said, does Pearl Harbor? Oh, I heard that. And then I said, do you know the president? No. I said, who do you know about the war? Well, I know Hitler was a bad man. And I said, anything else? She says, well, there's... I think they were Holocaust, but I'm not sure about it. And I asked a question, she knew nothing. She didn't know who the Allies were, she didn't know who the Axis powers were. And I was, so then I said to her, I have an album, which I had collected all my pictures, and my mother got me the book that when I came home, and I said, you go through this book, and you can look through the pictures, and you can understand some of the things that I, places I've been to. And as she's going through the album, she stops and finds, this is 50 years after, this is a month, about six months before the 50th anniversary of D-Day, 1993, close to that. And she says, what about these people? Who are they? I said, why are you choosing these pictures? She said, well, I see these girls there and these women and the airplanes. I said, well... I have no idea. I said, I know Mama Olga, and Mama Olga gave me a St. Christopher's medal. She said, what's that? I said, it's a a Catholic, it goes around your dog tags if you want to, safe passage. I said, well, I need all the safe passages I can get. So the, the point remains that she says, well, why don't we write them? They might still be around. I said, I have no idea who they are. That was 50 years ago. I don't know these people. I only know some of the girls that were getting to know a bit. And I know Mama Olga, and I'd love to know something about her. But she said, well, you write a letter, and I will then uh, have my father speak French. He was Moroccan, 
he speaks French. So I wrote a letter, and I just wrote, I'm very fortunate to have met this beautiful family. We exchanged goodies, and, uh, but I would like to find Shekhe Poma Mama Olga. And I put down the letter, and then she says, I want to take these pictures out of your album. I said, well, they're pretty well stuck in the album. She said, I'll be very careful to make sure the corners are put back in. So she takes the eight or nine pictures. She goes to Kinko's, and she, she mails it to the mayor of St. Mary Glee. Because I asked her what she's doing with it. I said, she said, I took care of it. You, I put them all back. Don't worry about it. And I completely forgot about that. It seems that six weeks later, six weeks later, I get a big envelope with a stamp on, I still have it right here, in fact, in, the, in my drawer, a big, a, the mayor's office, and it seems that the mayor's secretary opened up the pictures and she recognized her niece as one of the girls that I was seeing. Now, you can make that story up in a million years. And she says, holy mackerel. So she posts this on the bulletin board of the town hall. And all the town comes to see, and they recognize themselves around the airplane. And then I was flooded with, if you open up the middle drawer here, all this stuff is from France. Stuff, all, all this mail, all this stuff here. See, all this was France. All, all this, this is a family from France during D-Day. This is the 50 last. So I was, I was loaded with pictures of, of people because they felt I gave them liberty. They never met an American. And I realized when I knocked on the door, they were, they were under the influence of Nazi Germany for four years. And when I knock on the door, they see an American. I never realized that. I only realized it more recently. And it's a humbling experience because I'm just an average GI that was looking for food. So it's a good story. And it ended up that we became friends. We used to write each other, and they're our closest friends today. We, in fact, on the 70th anniversary, 75th anniversary of D-Day, they invited my whole family. I couldn't go, and I couldn't leave my wife. She wasn't well, and they, they were the family invited them to stay there. My granddaughter, who was there, met them with her with her children. It's a great story. You couldn't make it up. No, and the only reason I believe you is because during the last major anniversary of D-Day, I actually got to interview some of those people via email, and they talked about how precious you were to them. They wrote you? I wrote them. I didn't know that. And they wrote back. I didn't know that. We got exchanged letters. They are delightful, Gilbert and Lillian. Exactly. You mean a lot to them because you represent freedom to them. Well, they came to visit us maybe 25 years ago. 
They came with bonbons and chocolate and perfume for my wife. It was it was just an emotional. Then then the 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 Chronicle at the time had a front page article about us meeting. It was very very emotional for me. And we write each other. They write me every birth my birthday on July. They know all our holidays. It's like two families meeting again. Very very moving story. Yeah, because your histories are so intimately entwined. It's not like war, it's human. The human aspect, people touching people. And I guess talking about warfare, it it, it seems that all of my experiences, other than the killing aspect of war, was the human, every place I went, I met people. I was like a visitor in a foreign country. And each person, even when I went to Germany, I had a good relation, surprisingly, with the German people. I liked them. They spoke English. They didn't like, nobody was a Nazi. I think they were compelled to survive under the Nazi regime. I didn't hate them at all. So I feel that humanity can touch. There's always good in all people. And that's been my philosophy of all life. And I'm thankful to be at this age of life to still function and make good friendships. So we're sitting here in your house, and it's essentially a de facto museum. We're here in your den. We're surrounded by black and white photos and color photos. Some of them were from before the war, some yeah. of them during, some of them after. Yeah. One of my favorite photos of yours I don't see displayed, and I don't know if you're willing to share this story, but there was a certain SS officer's wife that you became oh, quite fami- familiar with. Well, Can you tell me that story? Well, that was the end of the war, Kitty. Uh, she was, I met her. I met her. It was at the end of the war. She was an interpreter. And she was very attractive. And we got to... I met her family. She was in like an old hut. It was in Linz, Austria. And we, we found a close relationship. It was a loving relationship. Um, and and she was able to give me her background and she had to admit the fact she was a year older than I was. She was married to a German officer who was killed on the Russian front. And when I heard that, I said, I, I sort of crimped my said. Wow, and she shows me his clothing. I said, I I don't feel comfortable in this house. But nevertheless, we had a good, loving relationship. It didn't last more than maybe a month, as long as I was there, because the war was over then. And um, then one experience with her was that she wanted to take me to the Danube. And I said, well, I said, she wanted to go in. I said, no, I'm all my full-dress uniform. So she takes off her clothes, and underneath was a homemade bathing suit. And she jumps in the water. I said, holy mackerel, what a gorgeous figure. Well, I met, I know the figure, of course. And she pulls, she's walking out of the water. I said, hold it. I run, I run to my Jeep, I take up my camera, and I see her. The beautiful bathing suit showed a lot. And that, and that picture is a reminder of the end of my experience in, in, in Europe and in, in the Austria. And I, I gave it to friends of mine. It's in the barbershops all over Thousand Oaks. It's, 
It's a cute story. It's a gorgeous, human. yeah. A human story. Well, because it's just people searching for connection yes. in the midst of a terrible war. Yeah. And to your credit, it's a beautiful photo because it shows a young, beautiful brunette woman who is just getting out from splashing in the Danube, and she's wearing a homemade swimsuit that happens to turn sheer when it's wet. Well, it was just seductive. Today's standards, it's really nothing at all. But at the time, it was, you know, it, it's a bit gaudy. But, but the fact is that it, it reminds me of, I found that even though my war experiences were tragic in most respects, losing most of my friends, and, uh, and I try to dilute it by getting to know people rather than killing yeah, and it's a good reminder that you were just a man in his young 20s while you were over there fighting for your country. Yes, I think so. I yeah. try to see goodness in humanity, even though there were difficult periods. That uh, I just reached out to people, and I find that's who I am. I think boy changes people, but I've always seen the best of humanity with people. And I don't mean to make light of your experiences because for every time that you met a lovely family in France or you were able to have a relationship with someone in Germany, you also had really tragic experiences. Counterpoints to that would be like times where you would be flying missions and you would have to say goodbye to someone as, you know, one of your um, one of your fellow soldiers was falling to his death, right? Because you guys were communicating on, on throat mics. And sometimes you'd be speaking to someone when their plane yeah, was that, hit. Yeah, you know, that's very true. Um, what, what I've been, for 25 years, I've been going to kids, to schools, high schools and, and mid-schools. And uh, I don't think they care about the war. They care about the personal aspect of my life. What I ate, I said, well, I adapted well. But the first, the beginning of my ability to function in the service was living with 20 other guys and going to the bathroom together and sitting there and either you go or you don't go because you're going to be gone for a long time. And so you learn to, to function uh, on command, on command. And then, of course, what I did love to eat was pork. Now, we weren't religious, but I loved pork and I loved bacon. If I told my grandfather, he'd be very upset over that, of course. But, but, and Spam, now Spam was all pork. And yet we loved Spam because I used it as a butter. I put it on my mess kit, heat it up, and, and get my, my powdered eggs there. So I, I, I was an anomaly because I, I enjoyed a lot of that because it was an experience for me other than the loss and the tragedy of flying missions over all over France and Germany and Austria. And uh, I don't like to go into the negative aspect of war because uh, I'm fortunate I came back with 33 missions over Europe. And I'm, I'm, I understand that none of my friends are still around anymore and I have nobody to schmooze with. And that hurts. But I overcome it by trying to reach out and going to schools and colleges and talking to them about my experiences and the human aspect of my life. So it's Independence Day on Sunday, July 4th. And I couldn't obviously dig up a Revolutionary War veteran, but I feel like just as much as the Revolutionary War 
World War II veterans are also responsible for our independence in a way because you kept us and the rest of the world free at a very critical mm -hmm. moment in world history. As a World War II vet, what does July 4th mean to you, especially because you have lost so many of your friends at this point? Well, I've always been a, 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 a student of history and I, I've gone through every battle of the Revolutionary War. Not only have I studied it, I've lived it. I've, I've known every aspect of the people there. I've researched it. And I find that America is a, is a country unequal to any other country in the world. And we've gone through a very difficult couple of years. And I think we're coming out of the problem. And I believe that the energy we're creating now will generate throughout the world. I think America is the, is the, is the Statue of Liberty for the world. And I have to represent a, a fading generation because I'm going to be, what, uh, 98, I guess. I don't, thank God um, my son talks about aging and he calls me an anachronism. And people say, what's anachronism? I say, I just don't belong because I still am able to drive, sort of. I'm still able to read a map, and I still have feelings emotionally. So I'm thankful to be here, and I'm, I'm saddened by the fact that when I go to classes and talk to children or adults and college students, they know nothing about that period. And I've tried as best as I can to generate interest in American history. Not heroically, there's no heroics. And they talk about the greatest generation, Tom Brokaw. I don't feel that way. I think we all did what we had to do. What people didn't realize that we were going through at the period, a very dark period in America. And those of us that were there contributed as best we could. My little part of it was something I I look forward, I look, I look at it now uh, in terms of my grandchildren, and they should understand the period as well. And I'm thankful to be able to contribute to Dawn here and uh, the questions and the, I hope the responses are worthwhile. Hope it means something. Well, it means something to me. And I just want to thank you for doing this interview because I love you so much. And I especially love your story and your storytelling. That's it for this episode. We hope you join us next week. Thanks for listening. Branching Out is hosted by Kyle Jory and Ian Bradley, who also serves as the show's engineer and editor. The show is produced by Allison Montroy and associate producer David D.L. Lopez. It is a product of the Acorn Newspapers. <laughs>